Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Today we're continuing our series called Church in the Wild. It's a chapter by chapter study of the book of 1 and 2 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 1. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty or the fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters and you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Verse seven, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you do, or treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, and love other brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Pray with me now. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for the sweetness of your spirit in this place. I thank you for these incredible parents who have made the step to devote their children to you. They're acting in obedience to say, Lord, you've blessed us. And so we bless this child by giving them back into your care and provision, praying for their safety and their development. And Lord, today, as we approach your word, we pray that you would make ready the hearts of men to receive the word of truth, that you'd be strong in my weakness and speak directly into the hearts of your people. Mold us like the potter shapes the clay. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So I want to give you a little bit of context into what's happening here in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, This is obviously written by Peter, the disciple who walked with Jesus and saw every aspect of his life for three years. Peter saw his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. He writes to early believers who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and they are beginning to face persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. As he writes the book of 1st and 2nd Peter, he writes with an expectation, an anticipation, if you will, of persecution that's about to escalate. 
We have the benefit of history. And as we look back at the years that immediately following the writing of this letter, we see that indeed the church was persecuted mercilessly by the Roman emperor Nero. He was a demon possessed, bent on extinguishing New Testament Christianity at its inception. What these new believers, what the early church endured is something that is unfathomable. And today, the gospel upon which we stand, the church which we are built, was paid for by the blood of martyrs who died and gave their lives for the sake of this precious message. The overarching message of 1 Peter is to remain holy in a hostile world. Instead of acknowledging their suffering, trying to comfort them, he instead implores them and charges them to continue to be stable and steadfast, don't grow weary in well-doing, and remember to live a life that is holy in a hostile world, be a light in the darkness. So over the next few moments, we're going to work our way right down chapter three. We're going to go verse by verse, and I'm going to warn you right now, uh, today's topic is radioactive, all right, especially in the climate of the world in which we live today. So if there's anything at all I say today that offends you, to God be the glory. And if you have a problem with today's sermon, you can take it up with the Lord God Almighty, because he's the author of life and inspired his word, all right? So the very first few verses, verses one through nine, provide instruction for wives, husbands, and then believers in general. So those are the first nine verses. The reason Peter begins there is because if you have any chance of living a holy, consecrated life in the world, it starts at home. It starts at home. Tell your neighbor, it starts at home. Now, a little more added context here that is imperative that we understand is that the ancient world was vastly different than the world we live in today. In this culture, it was almost unthinkable that a wife would adopt a new religion or a new faith apart from her husband. But that's exactly what was happening in the early church. How many of you know women were the early adopters of Christianity? In fact, they still are today. Many of them are dragging their husbands, dragging their children to church. Husbands, if that's you, just look straight ahead and don't make an expression. Um, but the, the ladies were the early adopters of Christianity. And so they had questions for the church leaders. They were asking questions like, well, now that I am a Christian and my husband is still an unbeliever, should I remain married to him? Should my relationship with him change? Or should I now become the leader, the head of the home, because I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I now see life through a new lens and perspective, and he's still lost in his old life. So that's the backdrop in additional context to 1 Peter chapter 3. So as you read at the very beginning, it says that wives should submit to their husbands. I told you this is going to be radioactive, and here we are today definitely getting emails. I want you to understand this, submission has nothing to do with value. Tell your neighbor, it's nothing to do with value. See, for too long, we have equated submission to my importance. 
If I'm submitted to someone or I'm submitted to an organization, then I must be inferior to them or less valuable. But let me dispel that from the very beginning. The scripture tells us that in Christ, we are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. God is no respecter of persons and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And he proceeds into verse seven to tell the husbands, she is your equal. So submission is not a connotation of value. In fact, to illustrate this a little bit more vividly, I want you to remember Jesus Christ who willingly submitted himself to his earthly parents and then he willingly submitted himself to his heavenly father. Do you remember in the garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, father, let this cup pass from me. He knew the suffering that was awaiting him. He said, Lord, let it pass. But nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. Jesus Christ submitted himself to his parents and his father, but not for one second was he inferior to them. For always he has been the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the image of the invisible God. Come on, somebody, if you believe what I'm saying today, he remained the second member of the Godhead, the Trinity, equal with the father and the Holy Spirit. Though he submitted, his value was transcendent. So when the scripture speaks of submission, it's not saying that you're less valuable. Another reason that we cringe when we hear the word submission is because we've often lacked understanding of its true meaning. Submission is actually a conjunction of two words, sub and mission. Sub means under and mission means mission. So when the scripture says that we should be submitted to Christ. It's saying that we should come under his mission. And when it says wives, you should submit to your husbands. It's not saying that he should be a tyrannical dictator and you have to obey everything he commands. It's saying that you are to come under his mission, that you are to be united in body, soul, spirit, and purpose. We are to be moving in the same direction and the same mission. How many of you guys have ever worked for two bosses at the same time? Anybody? Have you ever had two direct reports, two people that you report to, and you're like super confused, like what is going on here? Like uh, no one? Okay, well, let me help you. As a pastor, I've made the mistake of having people report to two different people. And that's a recipe for disaster and convolution and confusion because one says go left, the other says go right, let's go up, go down. And then the person caught in the middle is super frustrated. God is a God of order and he sets the universe and the family and the church into order by giving someone the responsibility of being a leader. But just because they have a position doesn't make them more valuable than anybody else. Is this making sense to anybody today? Like three of you. Okay. Um, that's the exact response from the earlier services. So this is the exact opposite message that the world is telling you. The world today is telling you the exact opposite. The world is saying, hey, everything you can do, I can do it and better. Um, that's just not true. Can I say it? Thank you. But it's one person is agreeing with me. So look, there are things that men can do that women can't. 
And there are things women can do that men cannot do. Okay, this is just common sense. Okay, hello. Welcome back to planet Earth. Now, I know that the world wants to sow confusion and discord and, but I'm gonna tell you something. I'm at the place now in my life where whatever the mainstream world is doing, I wanna run the exact opposite direction. In fact, scripture says the way that leads to destruction is wide and broad and many there are that go after it. But the way that leads to life is straight and narrow and few there be that find it. The way of the kingdom of heaven works in the polar opposite of the ways, thinking, and ideology of the current world, all right? By the way, it's important to understand Satan's tactic from the very beginning has been to sow confusion and dysfunction in the family unit. It always has been. And what he loves to do is to normalize sin so that a holy life seems strange and peculiar. He's doing a pretty good job of that, isn't he? He wants to normalize sin and then make you feel weird for actually following God and his word. I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and I'm going to go the opposite direction. Tell your neighbor, I'm going the other way. I'm going the other way. Now, moving on, you know, husbands right now are probably really liking this sermon. They're like, yeah, you, you need to submit to me. Uh, but hold up real quick, because actually we're all to be submitted to someone. Ladies, you should have amen. That way I set you up right there. Should have spiked that thing. Amen. So, you know, scripture calls wives to submit to their husbands to come under their mission, but it also commands husbands to submit to Christ and to come under his mission and his lordship. We are all to be submitted to somebody. And if you say, oh, I'm not submitting to anybody, but I follow Jesus, you're a liar. How can you submit to a God that you haven't seen if you can't submit to the people you do see? How can you love a God that you haven't seen if you can't love the people that you do see? We're called to submit to our God-appointed leaders, all right? Now, this actually is a continuation of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, which addresses how should we behave and conduct ourselves in the government when it persecutes us. Remember, the context here is that the early church is being persecuted, all right? And the answer might shock you. The Bible tells us that we are to obey the laws of the land and we are to submit and live peaceably with our government. No amens in here and I can feel the tension, but good morning. Now, here's where the Bible draws the line. You ready? We are to submit to our government and to our governing authorities until they require us to do something that is sinful before God. So we live in agreements and in harmony until they require us to sin before a holy God. And that's when we can say, thanks, but no thanks. I brought the Bible to show you. Acts chapter four, verse 18 says this. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everything we've seen and heard. Church, this is powerful. What's happening here is the council of Jerusalem, the governing authority has arrested Peter and John. They brought them before the council. 
And they say, hey, look, I know your ministry is, is growing and thriving. Miracles are happening. And that's all fine and good. Just from now on, we're going to let you go under one condition. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. How many of you know the enemy has always been bothered by the mention of the name of Jesus? How many of you know today there's power in one name, the name of Jesus? The enemy has always been trying to, to silence the name of Jesus. Have you ever stopped to realize nobody in the world is offended by Muhammad, Buddha, Harry Krishna, the Hebrew gods? In fact, they celebrate you, applaud you. Oh, but you just mentioned that one name, Jesus. And people recoil. It provokes a response because there is power in the name of Jesus. And neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Back to the point. The council says, stop preaching Jesus. And Peter and John said, hey, we were with you until that. And we would rather follow God than you. So we live in submission until our authorities require a sin against God. And that's when you have the permission to say, I no longer follow you anymore. I'm following the Lord. Does this make any sense to anybody? Wives, you are to be submitted to your husband unless or until he commands you or encourages you to do something sinful outside of God's purpose. By the way, an important distinction is that Peter says, wives submit to husbands, not women submit to men. Big difference. So single guys, you have no authority. All the single ladies said amen, right? They're, they're loving this sermon, right? It went from you hate it to you now you love it, right? So, you know, and by the way, what is with us waiting until we're 47 years old to get married? Oh, you, somebody's like, I hate this church. <laughs> hey, you know, we're afraid of commitment today. But you might as well go ahead and get on over yourself and stop waiting for the perfect person because you ain't perfect either. And instead of living in sin, how about you make a commitment to get married and live right before God? Oh, it's getting quiet. You know what happens when it gets quiet at Vision Church? That's when I know I'm right up in your driveway. I'm like, wait, I'm like, hey, hey, I'm at your house now. Yeah. Um, can I tell you a story? When I've been preaching about not living together, not sleeping together before you're married, you know what's been happening at this church? We've done so many weddings, like on a Tuesday afternoon with two witnesses, like more than I can count. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. But you know what? I love it. And I'm proud of you. Those of you who have done the right thing before God. Somebody's like, I'm never coming back to this church, right? Well, look, if you never come back, at least you heard the truth while you were here. And we love you enough to tell you the truth because the truth is the only thing that's powerful enough to set you free. God's way is better, by the way. I know you think that your way of living is better, but he's the author of life, the architect of heaven and earth. I think he knows a little better than we do. Life is better in commitment and in covenant. Verse one continues by saying, then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words and they'll be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. 
In other words, he's saying here, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't divorce them. Don't try to usurp their authority. Instead, with your actions, preach the gospel of reconciliation. And there's a powerful principle here that the most powerful sermon we will ever preach will not be with our words, but with our life. And that we can live in such a way that it brings conviction and points people to the gospel. It is his kindness that draws us to repentance. Not our nagging, not our condemnation. We're not the Holy Spirit, we don't convict, but if we live a life of humility and purity and honor and reverence, God will do the work that only he can do. It's hard to win over an unbelieving husband if you consistently disrespect him, criticize him, or defy him. You wanna know a secret? You wanna know a secret? The secret to every man's heart, I'm about to tell you. So ladies, you should write this down or at least pretend to write it down. You know what the number one thing that unlocks a man's heart? And all the other services have been guessing wrong all day. First they said food. That was a good answer, but like third. Then somebody was like, sex? Like, and then they like, the duck their head. <laughs> and some of the men were like, yeah, that one. But no, no, no. Actually, Actually, believe it or not, the way to every man's heart is respect. Deep down in our subconscious, men crave and desire one thing above all else, and it's respect. If a man feels disrespected by his spouse, that will breed all sorts of dysfunction. Either he'll bow up in anger or he'll cower away in passivity. But if you respect him, and you honor him, he will flourish and be receptive to the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. It truly is the word. And so we are called to walk in respect. All right, that's the secret to a man's heart. Moving on, 1 Peter 3, 3, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. The Bible is saying that true beauty comes from within. Now, some legalistic preachers have taken this and been like, all right, now stop wearing makeup and stop doing your hair and just come in here wearing a trash bag. Okay, just no. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying that you should prioritize character and integrity above outward beauty because beauty fades, but character and integrity remains. And what good is it if you marry somebody that's beautiful on the outside, but they're full of death and decay and wickedness on the inside that defiles a person, not from without, but from within. And while I'm here, just this is totally for free. I'm just gonna drop this off. Um, modesty is still important. All the moms in the house were just like, like I've talked to people and they're like, you know what, the Bible, does, it doesn't matter about being modest. You know what I mean? You just, there's freedom. Well, actually the New Testament talks about modesty a lot. And um, I'm not gonna get into all the examples, but you can ask your mom or a connect group leader, okay? Um, but beauty, listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. You wanna attract the right person? Be a person of character and integrity. You want to attract a guy that's just chasing lust? Then show him all, every, leave nothing to the imagination. Okay, anyway, uh, we'll move on. That's a different sermon, right? <laughs> different sermon. 
Somebody's like, I really don't like this church now, okay? Um, is it not the word of the Lord? And again, we're not here to condemn you. Jesus did not come to condemn you, but to show you life in its abundance, the fullness of life. Now we're moving to the husbands, all right? So husbands, you've been loving this sermon till right now. Now we're coming for you. Tell the men sitting next to you, now we're coming for you. Now we're coming for you. Husbands, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives and to treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. So again, like you got to go back to the historical context of this culture in order to unlock this. Because really, 2,000 years ago, Peter wouldn't have got an email about the first part, wives submitting to your husband. But what he would have gotten an email for is, husbands, honor your wives and remember that you are equal with her. In this culture, even in the Roman Empire, women did not have virtually any rights, even in their own marriage. It was imbalanced and unjust, to say the least. In fact, historians have recorded that if a woman was caught in adultery in the Roman Empire, she could be put to death. But if a husband was caught in the same sin, that she could literally and legally do almost nothing to him. There was an imbalance. So I know a lot of people and critics of our faith want to paint the Bible as this chauvinistic book that's antiquated, but I want to argue that actually the Bible was the first great voice on planet Earth that spoke for the rights of women. Three people agree with me, and those three people happen to be right. They're right. Again, it's not about your value. It's about God's creative order, his plan. But this part would have been the most controversial. As he begins to speak to the men, you have God-ordained duties and responsibilities to take care and to love and serve your wife. It's not all about you. Scripture says that husbands, you must honor your wives. A moment ago, I said, what's the secret to a man's heart? Respect. Well, now what is the secret to a woman's heart? prioritization and love. Women feel love by being prioritized. If she feels second to the golf game, you in for some dysfunction. If she feels second to the Panthers, you're going to suffer on both sides of that. Okay. With her and the Panthers. All right. You're going to be struggling with all that. I was at the game on Monday, man. I was excited. And then, yeah. <clears throat> you can't give your wife what's left over and expect to have a happy marriage. You can't put all the energy into dating her and pursuing her and then once you marry her, put, put it on autopilot. Great marriages do not happen by default. They happen intentionally. By men honoring and investing and prioritizing their wives. The truth is, I know you work hard. I know you hustle. I know you're doing a great thing. But the truth is, if you come home empty and give your wife what's left over consistently, that's a rep recipe for dysfunction and for frustration. Where she blossoms and where she thrives is when she knows that she is priority in your life. And husbands, the priority of our lives should be God Almighty, then our spouse, then our children, then our job, career, and ministry. In case, in case you didn't get that the first time, it's God first, 
then your spouse, then your children. Sometimes we like to put our children ahead of our spouse. That also is a recipe for disaster. Not good for your children, not good for your marriage. This is in the marriage series. Someone keep moving. Is this helping anybody? You believe what I'm saying? It's the word of the living God. By the way, if a man prioritizes his wife and he loves her, serves her, and has her best interests at heart, she will have no problem following and coming under the mission of a man who's truly devoted to her. Yes. Ladies, am I telling the truth? Yes. Ephesians 5 takes it one step further. It says, hey, husbands, you should love your wives like Christ loved the church. Yes. Well, how did Jesus love the church? It sounds real poetic, but actually the principle is simple. He loved the church sacrificially when he died on the cross to give his life for her. How are we to love our wives sacrificially? That means you have to give up some things that you want to do to show her she's a priority. There's sometimes you're going to have to watch some stuff you don't want to watch. I have seen The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, The Crown. It's like something on that. I don't know. I mean, I'm taking one for the team. Okay. But I want to ask you a question in all sincerity. When was the last time you sacrificed something for her? Because we give up the things we love for the one we love even more. And if she feels prioritized, she will flourish and your marriage will be fruitful. Again, these things do not happen accidentally. Healthy marriages that last the test of time are built on investment and sacrifice. Oh, and by the way, one last thing, the Lord threw this in here. The Lord's getting involved. He said, oh yeah, husbands, and if you don't treat her right, I'm not gonna be hearing you. He says, I'm not gonna listen to your prayer if you treat her wrong. Anybody wanna thank the Lord for that, ladies? Yeah. Hey, so he, here's, the, here's the takeaway. He's saying, you can't treat your wife wrong and God right. You can't claim to be tight with God and disrespect your wife. Because how can you love a God who you haven't seen if you can't love the people that you do see? There's another scripture in the gospels that say, hey, before you come to the altar and lay your gift at the altar and praise me, why don't you, before you do that, why don't you go back there and reconcile and make things right with her? Y'all think I'm making this up? I'm preaching Bible today. You know what, you know what the altar call for some of you is? It's not to cry and, you know, come on up here and get prayed for. No, no. It's to say, I'm sorry. It's to say, will you forgive me? Take ownership and responsibility. Be reconciled one to another. And don't expect to be tight with God if you're living in discord with your spouse. God wants you to love her and to serve her right. Moving on. Uh, verse 8. <laughs> uh, he gives instruction now to all believers. He says, be of one mind. Tell your neighbor, be of one mind. And be of one mind literally means that we are to take on the mind of Christ. In this world, we will have trouble. We will have enemies that come against us, but we are to be united in our thinking, in our perspective and outlook on life. We're to take on the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is revealed in the Bible, which tells us about the things God cares about. Putting on the mind of Christ means that I love what he loves and I think about what he thinks about. It's time that God becomes more than an afterthought in our life and he becomes the forefront, the guiding star in our existence. The mind of Christ is this. His mind is for souls to be one, disciples to be made, 
for people to be reconciled to God and to one another and for there to be forgiveness, mercy, and grace. That is the mind of Christ that we should live with. If I'm being totally honest with you, that preach is really good on Sunday. And we're like, yeah, amen, preacher, you tell it. But the application is a little more abrasive when now you are not only to receive forgiveness, but you're also to extend it. We love to be forgiven by him. We love to rely on his grace and his mercy. But 1 Peter 3 now commissions you to take on the mind of Christ. And as you've been forgiven, so forgive. As you've received mercy, now be merciful. It's easy to preach it. It's another thing to live it. By the way, forgiving someone is not saying what you did to me is okay or right. Forgiveness is choosing to move forward and to set yourself free from the chains of those memories. We're called to live with the mind of Christ. I love the next thing he says to all believers as he gives instruction to live a holy life in a hostile world. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Again, he's anticipating injustice. He's saying suffering and persecution is going to come. And when it comes, don't repay insults with insults or evil for evil. He says to us that we are to do good to those who persecute us and curse us. Now, I know like the American spirit is, hey, you mess with me, I'm going to make it worse for you. Right? The flesh wants to retaliate. Our natural instinct is for justice and retaliation. But we are called to a higher standard of love than the world. Scripture says, if you only love the people who love you, you're no different than the world. The world loves the people who look like them, think like them, vote like them, follow the same Instagram accounts as them. It's easy to love people that love you, but what distinguishes a Christian from the world is that we love even our enemies. It's a love that requires supernatural strength and empowerment by his spirit. But I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you today that as a Christian, we are called to bless those who curse us and to even pray for our enemies. I've known a lot of Christians, especially in the climate of the world we live in today, and they want to go to war with people on Facebook and Instagram. They want to hurl insults. They want to cut them down and be right. Well, that's just simply not what the scripture calls us to do. This is not weakness. It's meekness. Don't get it confused. Luke chapter 6, verse 28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, then offer them your shirt also. Again, this is not popular preaching, but it is the word of the living God. We're to bless those who curse us. Pray for those who afflict us. Now, moving on, I want to show you one other powerful principle offered as instructions to all believers. As he says to live with one mind and the mind of Christ, he's also telling us that we should not allow issues with other Christians to linger on and on. Tell your neighbor, say, don't let it linger. And if you haven't figured this out yet, there's no such thing as a perfect church. I know you, you thought this one was because you've been here for like a week. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect church because you go here and I pastor it. 
that was funny and you know it was. I had three other services today laugh at that. So I know my tests are tried and proved. My jokes are proven by the time they get to the 11 o'clock. All right. So I already know that works. All right. But the truth is, it's only a matter of time until somebody offends you or wrongs you. Yes, even in the church. Okay. I probably have done it multiple times during this sermon. But here's the thing. When a brother or sister in Christ offends you, do not just sweep it under the rug and allow the issue to linger on and on. Scripture commands that in this dark and perverse world, we must be united. We must genuinely love one another. We must genuinely come together and walk in unity. That means we can't let the drama linger. And if you're taking notes today, Matthew chapter 18 gives you the play-by-play, step-by-step process on how to resolve conflict within the church or within other Christians. All right, Matthew 18. I'm going to summarize it really quickly. Number one, if a person sins against you, you should talk to them in private, one-on-one. You should talk to them, not about them. Oh, I'm preaching now. See, I'm preaching. See, in the church today, we like to rail against these sins that are out in the open and everybody likes to pile on. How could the world sin that bad? But in the church, we just let people gossip and run wild. But you know what gossip is? It's a cancer. And it's killing you and the church and her reputation. Stop talking about people and start talking to people. It's amazing how bold and brave we are behind a keyboard. I'll tell you, right? Or like it's amazing how bold we get at the kitchen table when it's just like two people listening. But I want to challenge you. Don't say anything in private that you wouldn't say in public to their face. And how about even better? Let's follow Matthew 18. Let's talk to the person, not about them. Girl, let me tell you what she did last Thursday. I know. Let me just tell you. No, it's just so you can pray. It's just so you'll know how to pray. Girl, you ain't praying. We already know you ain't praying. You gossiping. (laughs) Keep that to yourself. And let's stop being cowards. And let's be courageous. Let's love one another enough to confront the issue one-on-one, man-to-man, woman-to-woman. And if the person repents, then you're reconciled and glory to God. Matthew 18 goes on to step two. If they don't repent and you're not reconciled, then go back with a witness. Bring somebody else who also saw it and heard it. And in love, present the truth and invite them to reconciliation. If they don't, in step two, then Matthew 18 describes one more. It's level three. And that means that you bring their sin before the church. That doesn't mean that you go, Pastor Tyson, let me have the mic. Uh, Last Thursday, Susie said this. I want you all to be aware. That's not what it means. Matthew 18, when it says bring it to the church, it means that bring your discord to the elders of the church or the pastors of the church so they could speak the word of God on time and in season for reconciliation and healing in the body. So don't let it linger. Let's be reconciled one to another. Moving on, verse 13. Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. Don't be afraid or worried about their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Um, Not going to spend a lot of time on this one really quickly, but you will suffer for doing right in the world. You truly will. But scripture says there is a blessing when you endure suffering for the cause of Christ. 
Now, let's make a distinction here. You can suffer or be persecuted and rejected because of your genuine faith in Jesus, which that will be rewarded and you'll be blessed. But you can also be persecuted and rejected because you did something dumb. And if you are being persecuted because you made a dumb decision, that doesn't mean you're being persecuted. Okay, if you did something you shouldn't have done, said something, there are consequences in the earth and that does not mean you're persecuted. If you did it to you, it's not persecution. If you were rejected or afflicted because of your faith in Christ, that is persecution. Don't grow weary in well-doing and realize there is a blessing for enduring trials for the cause of Christ. Verse 15, he says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. What he means, plain and simple, is this. In the middle of your persecution, as it begins to onset, and you begin to experience pain and second guessing, and you want to preserve yourself, and you want to escape the suffering, you want to denounce Christ, you want to go back to your old way of living, sanctify the Lord inside of your heart, and remember that he alone sits on the throne of my heart and I will endure this rejection, this persecution because Jesus is my King and my Lord and I will endure for his sake, not escape in self-preservation. First Peter 3.18 tells us that the just suffer for the unjust. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where 2,000 years ago, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but find everlasting life in him. You have to understand the Lord is not asking you and I to do something he is not willing to do himself. After all, Jesus is our example and he did suffer unjustly for doing what is right. The world will hate you if you follow Jesus. If you live like Jesus, the world will despise you and reject you. But in your rejection and persecution, Remember the cross, sanctify the Lord in your heart and remember that he who knew no sin became your sin on the cross, that you and I might be called the righteousness of God through him. Come on somebody and give the Lord praise if you're thankful for the just suffering for the unjust. I want you to feel that a minute. The just suffered for the unjust. The truth is Romans tells us that not one of us is truly good, not one of us is truly righteous. Scripture says that none of us are truly seeking God, but all of us like sheep have gone astray and we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is we all deserve hell. We all deserve eternal punishment and separation from God Almighty. There is not one person on earth that is just in and of themselves. We are all unworthy of heaven and unjust in the eyes of God. Ephesians says that though we were dead in our sin, lost in our trespasses, living in open rebellion to God, he was rich in mercy and he loved us so much that he gave his son to die on the cross in our place. I want you to hear me loud and clear in this room. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Every one of you will one day stand before the maker of heaven and earth. 
you will stand before him alone. Grandmama, pastor, dad, uncle, nobody's going to be there, just you and your maker. The moment you draw your last breath, you'll stand before your maker. And in that moment, you will either be guilty, condemned to eternal shame and judgment, separation from God, or you'll be found blameless, sinless, forgiven, holy, and pure. And it all hinges on your faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the just who suffered for the unjust. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It is a free gift to sinners. Good people don't make it to heaven. Forgiven people do. Stop trusting in your goodness, doing more good deeds than bad to make it to heaven. There is only one way to be saved. It's by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on that rugged cross. As you sit in this room right now, heaven's gates are open. Come to Jesus just as you are. Pray with me now all over this place. Father, we repent of our sin. We confess to you that our life has been marked by lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition. Today we ask for mercy. We recognize that we deserve your judgment and wrath and that we are unjust. But today we place our faith in the finished work of Calvary, that Jesus Christ took our place, took our penalty. The sins of the world were laid upon him. He suffered and died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Today, I give you my life, my past, present, and future. Change my heart, help me to love you and serve you all the days of my life. And today I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus that cleanses my sin, iniquity, and shame. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.